Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be back in Nehemiah this morning, where we've been for the last couple of weeks. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, to be more specific, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, under a chair, somewhere near you. You can grab that. Um, as I said, we are in the third week of our series that we've titled Rebuilding. And if you have not been here, um, what we're doing is we're just kind of going through the book of Nehemiah, uh, kind of chunk by chunk by chunk. And so uh, to kind of reorient us a bit, uh, because some new faces in the room, and then also maybe like you've been here the last two weeks, but you haven't really been here the last two weeks, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'll kind of reorient you with kind of where we are. Uh, so, so the book of Nehemiah begins, we were, two weeks ago we kind of covered the, the intro. Uh, the book of Nehemiah begins um, with, with us just learning our, Nehemiah is not, uh, as the book begins, he's not anybody significant necessarily. And what I mean by that is he's not a prophet, he's not a king, uh, he's not a judge like we read in the Old Testament. He's just a guy who uh, in God's providence finds himself um, kind of brought into uh, the king of Persia who had kind of taken over uh, Jerusalem and, and Judah. Uh, he finds himself as, a, as a, a cupbearer in the king's court. Okay, and so uh, where we pick up the story of Nehemiah, and this is where we started a couple weeks ago actually, is uh, Nehemiah just doing his thing, kind of serving the king's uh, wine, making sure it's not poison, doing what cupbearers do. And uh, Nehemiah gets a report from some men from Judah that things in Judah are not great, right? The city had been ransacked, the walls had been destroyed, uh, like everything was in ruins. And so Nehemiah uh, gets this word that his, the city he loves and the people he loves are uh, in, in desperate need of help. Uh, and as you can understand, man, Nehemiah's heart is broken, right? And so... Uh, what we covered last week is, is as he hears this news, he, he weeps and he mourns, but not only does he weep and he mourn, he begins to pray. Right? The, the text from last week, I believe it's back in verse 5 of chapter 1, uh, or verse 4, he says that he begins to fast and pray, uh, and, and he begins to cry out to the Lord to, to do some things. Right? And he cries out to the Lord because, like we talked about last week, uh, the Lord is the one who, uh, man, keeps his promises, hears his people, extends grace and mercy to uh, to those who are broken, uh, and who actually has the power and the capacity to bring about uh, rebuilding and restoration where things are broken. And so that's kind of where we were last week. But then what we're going to see this week as we continue on in chapter 2 is that uh, where Nehemiah prayed last week, okay, is that that prayer, uh, it actually leads to some more things. Or so there's some things that are going to flow out of Nehemiah's time praying to the Lord uh, for the people of Judah and for the city uh, of Jerusalem. And so uh, as we've done for the, next, or for the last several weeks, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand. I know that's still new for some of us. We're going to read God's Word together. This is actually from the book of Nehemiah. We'll get there in a few weeks, all right? Uh, but we're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 2. So here's, here's what we read, starting in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. 
And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple." And for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. You can go ahead and have a seat. So what we see here, right out of the gate, is there's a, there's a, there's a detail that's really easy to just like read and not even think about. Okay, and more specifically, if you look at verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan. Okay, now that means nothing in and of itself. But if you go back to where we started a couple weeks ago, back in, uh, you can turn, I don't know what your layout of your Bibles look like, might be on the same page, might be on a previous page. But if you look at the very first verse of the book of Nehemiah, it starts off with this. Now it happened in the month of Kislev. Okay, now if you'll trust me, that's about four months worth of time. Right, so from the time Nehemiah gets word, hey, the city is destroyed. The people are in trouble. Uh, they need help. From the moment that Nehemiah gets that announcement until Nehemiah uh, kind of presents his request to the king, four months have passed. Okay, now what we know is, is during these four months, Nehemiah has, has just continued to faithfully serve, faithfully fulfill his duties in uh, service to the king of Persia. And I have to imagine, like, that had to have been a miserable four months. I mean, you, you, you know what it's like, right, to, to try and do your job when your, like, head and your heart are just somewhere else, right? You guys know what that's like. It's, it's a hard thing to do. And so for Nehemiah, uh, four months ago, he gets word, hey, your people are in trouble, your city is destroyed, uh, they're in desperate need of help, and yet for four months, Nehemiah continues to just faithfully serve uh, faithfully fulfill his role as the cupbearer to the king, at least until this moment. All right, look at, look at verse 2. It says, And king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then Nehemiah says he was very much afraid. All right, so for four months, Nehemiah has held it together, and then all of a sudden, like, it just becomes obvious to the king. And so the king says, hey, what's going on? And this is, to be clear, this is not the same as your boss coming to you saying like, hey, is everything all right? Right, do you, uh, like, do you need to take the afternoon off? Is everything okay? Like this is serious for Nehemiah when the king looks at him and says, hey, what's going on here? Right, because that phrase, uh, sadness of the heart can also be translated as uh, having a, a bad or evil heart. Right now, we know that the intents of Nehemiah's heart were not bad or evil, but the king doesn't know that. 
Right? The king sees something going on with Nehemiah. Right? The king sees something suspicious going on with the guy who tastes his wine to make sure it's not poisoned. So if you're the king, you're like, wait a second. Is everything all right? Okay? And so Nehemiah, he, he reassures the king, verse 3. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Okay, so he reassures the king, hey, everything's, it's okay. Like, nothing suspicious here, right? Nothing you need to worry about. But the king senses there's something more, all right? And so he, he goes on. He says, why should not my face be sad? This is Nehemiah. Why should my face, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So, so in a moment, Nehemiah reveals the source of his sadness. Okay, and then the king, being observant as he is, picks up on the fact that there's still something behind Nehemiah's uh, admission here. Right? There's still something behind what Nehemiah has to say. And so in verse 4, the king said to Nehemiah, what are you requesting? Right? What are you requesting? It's kind of like when your kids come to you and like they say something, but you know there's like a question behind what they're saying to you. You know what I mean? Like the king picks up on that. So he says, hey, Nehemiah, what are you requesting? Right? And you have this sort of climactic moment here. If you jump back up to the last verse in chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah has prayed for this moment. He prayed specifically at the end of chapter 1 that the Lord would give him mercy or, or favor in the sight of the king. Like, so, so evidently, Nehemiah had this idea in mind, like, at some point, I'm going to have to, like, make a request to the king. God, give me favor in his sight. And so here you've got this moment. The opportunity is laid out right in front of him. And here's, here's what he does, right? Chapter, sorry, verse 5. It says, And then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So this is the first mention of a rebuilding work to happen in the book of Nehemiah. Hence the sermon series title, Rebuilding. Okay, from, from here on out, the rest of the book is kind of going to be uh, Nehemiah rebuilding the wall uh, and, and sort of rebuilding the people of God into the right worship of God, but, but here we've got this first mention of, of Nehemiah sort of taking ownership of this thing. Like, like up to this point, we know the city's broken, the wall's broken, the temple's destroyed. We know the people are in danger. They're vulnerable to, uh, to attack from enemies or, or other oppressors. Uh, but this is the first time that we see uh, Nehemiah saying, hey, I've got to do something about this. Right? Send me that I may rebuild it. Now, I'm inclined, this is a little bit of conjecture, okay, so I admit that. I'm inclined to believe that Nehemiah early on realized, like, I've got to do something, right? When you look at uh, kind of verse 11, like, like I mentioned, he knows, like, there's a day coming, like, I've, I'm going to have to say something to the king, I've got to do something. But admittedly, when, when friends come to you and they're like, hey, your city's destroyed, your people are in trouble, like, you, don't, you don't know what to do. He's like, I've got to do something, but I don't know what to do. But evidently what's happened over the last four months is that Nehemiah has been like agonizing and weeping and fasting and praying. And yet in that space, 
the Lord has met him. He's heard his prayers. And the Lord's beginning to do some things in Nehemiah's heart. Right? The Lord's beginning to reveal some things in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah begins to form some sort of, of direction, uh, some sort of plan or, or, or preparation for the work at hand. And I actually think that becomes really clear when you look at verses 6 through 8. Okay, so he, he makes this request. They send me to Judah so that I can rebuild the city. And this is the king said to me, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? Right, and so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So evidently, right, the king asked Nehemiah, hey, how long is this going to take? Right, how long of a leave of absence are you requesting? And Nehemiah has an answer for it. Right? Like, so evidently, Nehemiah has been thinking about this a little bit. Okay? Now, Nehemiah hasn't seen the city yet. That will be next week's sermon. Okay? But Nehemiah knows enough to know, like, to, to give some sort of estimate of how long it's going to take him to do this rebuilding work. And so he tells the king, hey, I need to be gone for X number of months, years, whatever. And the king's like, all right, seems reasonable. Okay? But then he goes on. He says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So not only has Nehemiah figured out about how long he thinks he'll be gone, Nehemiah knows that he needs to make some travel arrangements. Okay? And so he says to the king, hey, uh, to go to Judah, I've got to pass through these areas. I'm going to need you to authorize me some letters, kind of like a, a passport that lets me go through these places on my way back home. Okay, and he goes on, right? Nehemiah's getting bolder and bolder, and here's what he says in verse 8. And not only do I need uh, these letters, but I also need a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Right, so not only has Nehemiah figured out about how long it'll take him to complete the work, not only has he figured out like, hey, I'm going to need to make some travel arrangements to get from point A to point B. But he's also determined, hey, I'm going to need about this much timber to do this much work uh, that I know is, is going to need to be done. Right? He's been doing the math, calculating the figures, all that. He's, he's counted the cost. He knows what it's going to take. And so he says, hey, could you also send me a letter uh, to give to Asaph that he might give me some, some timber to, to complete the work? Right, and then what happens at the end of verse 8 is, is the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Right, so the king takes all these requests from Nehemiah. Right, I need time away. I need uh, help getting there. I need some materials and supplies. And the, it says... The king grants his request because the good hand of his God was upon him. In other words, God, in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, in his sovereignty, had, had providentially placed Nehemiah uh, in the king's court right? so that, so that he might uh, make these requests to the king. The king could give him what he needs, send him on his way right? so that he could rebuild this broken city, rebuild a broken people. Right? So not only is the Lord placing there providentially, but gives him the plans, gives him 
uh, I mean, just the, the insight he's going to need to do this work that the Lord's going to call him to. Right? So, so really, the story of Nehemiah is not necessarily, hey, look how awesome Nehemiah is for rebuilding this wall. The story of Nehemiah is, is God, God doing the work of rebuilding, God doing the work of restoring, but he's going to do it through the hand of Nehemiah. Right? He's going to put Nehemiah providentially in these places to have what he needs to do the work. And then he's going he's gonna to use Nehemiah and give him some gifts of leadership administration and organization and all these things we're going to see in the weeks ahead. Right, he, he, he's going to do his work, work his plan, accomplish it through Nehemiah. And if you're taking notes, man, this is the story of the Bible. God accomplishing his plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. God doing it all and choosing to do it, right, choosing to work his good and perfect plan through imperfect people like you and like me. Right, this is what God does over and over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation. So, here's, here's kind of where this leaves us this morning. Okay? Don't hear that word leave and think I'm almost done. You guys know better than that. Okay? In, in a way, like last week's sermon and this week's sermon kind of hold one another in tension, okay? And, and like, a, like a good tension, a healthy tension. Here's what, what I mean by that. Okay, if you were here last week, we, we just really just talked about prayer, right? We talked about Nehemiah's prayer. We looked at why Nehemiah prays, because God is a God who, right, who hears his people, who, uh, I don't have my points right in front of me, so I'm trying to do this from memory, which is not easy to do, okay? Uh, but we talked about uh, how God is a God who hears his people, he, he listens, he's a God who uh, is powerful enough to answer. Right? We talked about all these things about God and why, why we should pray, why every good work of rebuilding and restoration begins with prayer. Right? And, and it does. Okay? Nehemiah rightly cried out to the Lord in last week's sermon, first in confession and repentance, but then also in, in asking the Lord to do some things. Okay? But not only that, right, what we see in our text this week is that, is yes, Nehemiah prayed, but Nehemiah's praying was not a license for passivity. Okay? In fact, that's the takeaway this week. So last week I had five points. This week I've got one. Right? And that's that praying is not a license for passivity. Okay, I want to go, I want to explore that a little more. I want to go back to those. So I told you earlier, four months from the time Nehemiah's like, here's that things are bad until he like makes his request to the king. Four months, okay? Again, had to be four long, agonizing, painful, miserable months for Nehemiah. Okay? But as we just saw, like not only were they, not only did he spend those four months praying and pleading with the Lord to do something, evidently he spent those four months planning and preparing for what the Lord was going to use him for. Right? He, he had estimated the length of time it would take. He had estimated uh, the materials he would need. He knew, like, hey, I'm going to need some help getting from here to there. Like, he'd begin to work and put together some plans for the work that the Lord was calling him to do. Yes, Nehemiah prayed, 
But he didn't just sit on his hands and do nothing after that. Okay, and so here's, here's, what, I, here's what I, listen, I want us to be a people who pray. Okay, like I, wanna, like I want to be a better prayer than I am. All right, I want us to be the kind of people like, that increasingly become like the people I mentioned last week. Like when they pray, like the room just feels different. Right, like I want that to be said of us. Okay? But, and, and here's, here's where I need you to lean in. Is praying and asking the Lord to do something to do a work in us, to do a work through us, to do a work among us. Right? Praying and asking the Lord to do something doesn't mean that we just get to sit like on the sidelines and wait. Okay? It, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that we get to just sit on our hands and be like, well, we'll kind of see what I prayed about it. Let's see what happens. Okay? Like, it doesn't mean that we just throw our request out there to God, and then we just kind of sit and wait for him to drop things into our lap. Now listen, sometimes he does. I, candidly, like Larkin family had some of that this week. Okay, praise God for those moments where the Lord just is like, here. Right? But I don't think that's the norm. Right? What I think happens more often than not is we pray, okay, we ask the Lord to bless. We ask the Lord to answer. We ask the Lord to do something. But then we also roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and get to work. Right? Because prayer is not a license for passivity. And so, like I was talking to, to Kelly about this yesterday at breakfast, um, kind of at the table. We're sitting there talking. Uh, and she, like in her wisdom, we're talking about the sermon and kind of the direction. And then it kind of actually made me change directions in the sermon because she's smart like that. Um, I should just let her write the sermons and I'll stand up here and, and like speak them. Okay. But we're sitting there at the table and we're talking about this whole idea that, that praying doesn't mean that we just sit passively by and wait for something to happen. And like in her wisdom, she's like, yeah, it's like Jesus said in Matthew 7. Okay. It, listen, it is a gift to have a spouse that like knows the book and can like talk about the book. I mean, it's pretty awesome and looks good while doing it. Okay. Was that too far? That was no, no. Okay. Listen, we just started grace marriage. So like it's working. Okay. So anyways, here's what, here's what she pointed me to the, the passage that she was referencing Matthew seven verses seven and eight. Is it words of Jesus? He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. I know if you caught it, but there is a progression there. Ask, seek, knock. Right? And that is a progression from more passive asking to a little less passive Seeking to like, all right, I got to actually do something. Knocking. Ask, seek, knock. Right? So, so this is Jesus' way of saying like, hey, yes, ask. God loves it when you ask. He invites you to pray and ask. You should ask. Right? Make your request known to the Lord. But don't, but don't stop there. Right? Do some seeking. Do some 
knocking. Right? Roll up your sleeves and get to work. Because prayer is not a license for passivity. Okay, so what does that look like in real life? Okay, I, and I just kind of, I got a few examples here. This is not going to be exhaustive, okay? But I want to kind of flesh this out and maybe real world type stuff, okay? So we're going to get really practical for kind of the rest of the sermon. All right, let's, let's just take where we are, like, like right now in this moment, okay? I, I love being here on Sunday morning and preaching to you. I'm glad you're here and in the room, right? I consider it an honor and a privilege to be able to do this every Sunday, okay? And yet I also want you to know that like, like I long for these seats to be full. And I long for it, right? Not because I'm not satisfied with you. It's just like I want to see more, more people. Okay, I, I hope you do too, okay? Like I've told you all before, like my, my prayer every Sunday when I walk through the parking lot, just kind of my silent, like under my breath sort of prayer is that one day uh, the, the Lord would give us such growth that like we'd, our parking lot's not big enough to hold everyone, you know? Now, the HVAC company still in half the parking lot might help with that, but uh, that was too, again, that was too soon, too soon. Um, but, like, that's my prayer, like, that, that the parking lot one day would have, like, we just wouldn't have room for everybody. Okay, my prayer is, like, we got to kick them out of the building after their lease is up because we need the space. That's what I hope. Okay, but I also know this, like, that that's going to require some work, right? I mean, I'll keep, I'll keep praying that prayer. I'm not going to stop praying it. Okay, but what I also know is that, like, there's some work to be done. Right, we, we've got to, we, we, like us together, have got to start seeing the places that we live and work and play as places like where we're supposed to live on mission to fulfill Jesus' call on our lives to make disciples to share the good news of the gospel. At the very least, to start inviting people like, hey, I go to this church. Like, we'd love to have you sometime. Okay, we're, we're not perfect, right? Pastor's kind of scrawny, talks for a long time. Okay, but we'd love to have you come with us. Right? We've got to start seeing these places. Like, we've got to put in, put in some work if we want to see that fulfilled. Listen, between 85 and 87% of Hardin County is not in church on any given Sunday. You want numbers, that's over 90,000 people right now, in this moment, that are anywhere but hearing the gospel preached. Not over 90,000. By the way, that number is about to grow quite a bit, okay, in case you've been living under a rock, okay? See, my, my point is like, man, the fields are ready for harvest. And so we should pray. Like we want to we see the harvest, but it also means like we've got to get out and do some hard labor. Right? We, if, we want, if we want this church to grow, it means we've got to do more than just sort of passively ask for God to give the growth. Now, does God give the growth? Yes. Right? That's in 1 Corinthians, I believe. I don't have the passage right in front of me. Yes, God gives the growth, but the text also says that we plant and water. Right? 
We're not passive in God giving the growth. All right, let me think. So that's just one church growth just kind of on my radar right now. Here's another one that I think sometimes we fall into passivity is when it comes to uh, trying to discern and do God's will. Right, that's, a, that's a good and right thing. I mean, I just want to, I want to do God's will. I want to I know what his will is for my life, and that's what I want to walk into. But I think sometimes, like, we, we pray and we ask for God to reveal his will and show us his will and what he wants us to do, and then we're just paralyzed because we, like, don't want to do the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Like, we pray, and we're like, oh, I don't, know if that's, I don't know if that's what I should do. I don't know if I should take that step. Let me just wait here until God makes it really clear. Okay, and, and what... I think there's a danger there. I mean, danger is too strong of a word, but like the Lord doesn't call us to pray and then just sit and do nothing. Like, yeah, we want to pray, Lord, show me your will. And then what we do is we should be just doing something and trusting that God's going to do course correction along the way. All right? There's a passage I love in um, Acts, I believe it's Acts 16, where Paul and Silas say like, right, they've made their travel plans. They're going to this place. They're going to this place. They're going to this place. And the text says twice in two verses, the Holy Spirit prevented them from doing what they planned to do. Listen, pray for God's will. Get to work. And listen, here, I need, I'm going to free you up this morning. You're not powerful enough to screw up God's will for your life. Like, you don't have that ability. And like you, may, you may make things a little more difficult than they need to be, but God's going to get you where he wants you regardless of how hard you try to screw it up. Right? Right? You all having fun yet? I am. Let's keep going. All right, I got some more. Here's another area where I think sort of kind of falling into passivity like does us so much harm is when it comes to fighting against sin. Right, fighting against sin. If you're here and you are a believer, you're a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus, like you should, I, I hope you want to experience victory over sin in your life. Okay? I mean, you should, if not, like if you're like, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not worried about that, then we should probably have a separate conversation, maybe like after church. Okay, but if you're here and you're a Christian, like you should want to experience victory over your sin. Okay, but when we, you know, we want to experience victory over sin, and then what happens sometimes is we just like pray to God and just say, God, I want you to, to like take it away. Lord, take away my sin. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And that is a good and right thing to do. That is a great place to start. Right? Pray that the Lord would change your heart and change your desires and give you a new mindset so that the things that are appealing to your flesh would not be as appealing, that you would walk more in step with the Spirit. It's a good prayer to pray, and you should pray it often, probably daily, if not multiple times daily. But if I'm reading my Bible right, experiencing victory over sin goes beyond just praying and then just kind of sitting and waiting. Right? I, the Sermon on the Mount, I referenced it earlier in Matthew 7, but Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has some pretty explicit words for eradicating the sources of sin from your life. Like in no uncertain terms, Jesus is like, hey, you need to do some war. Your, your, your eye is causing you to sin, you need to pluck that thing out. 
your hand is causing you to sin, you need to cut that thing off. Now, Jesus is not literally talking about like wounding yourself, but he's being serious about doing whatever it takes to eradicate the source of sin from your life. Right? Over and over and over again, the Bible talks about the need to, uh, to put our sin to death, to strangle it and to choke it. There is nothing passive about trying to fight and kill the thing that's trying to kill you. Right? That, that, there's nothing passive in that. Yes, the Lord gives victory, but it's going to require some cooperation and work on your part too. Right? No, one, no one grows in holiness. No one grows in sanctification by just sort of sitting on your hands and being like, eh, maybe someday I'll experience victory. Like, like none, none of us drift towards holiness. You know that, right? Like we've got sinful and bent hearts. We're like a car that's out of alignment. You ever driven a car that's out of alignment? Or like a shopping cart, at the, you know, where it's just like, what is going on with this thing, right? That's us. And we are not bent the right way. And so it's going to require a little, a little bit of muscle to hold this thing on the straight and narrow. All right? I got one more. One more area where I think passivity can, can be dangerous for us. And, uh, and I'll be honest with you, this is just my pet peeve. I'm just throwing it in there because this is the one that drives me insane. So you get to hear it, okay? Um, and I say that because I, I think it's mainly my generation. So if you're here and you're a millennial, listen up, okay? Whether we realize it or not, and this part's true for all of us. Whether we realize it or not, we are all searching for community. We all want to belong. Right? As, a, as a TV show from years past once said, sometimes you just want to go where everybody knows your name. Anybody under the age of 30 is like, what are you talking about? Right? Right? We all want to be a part of a community. We all want to experience a sense of belonging. But here's how I see this play out in the church world, or have seen it play out far too often. Okay? Uh, I'm going to make up a fictional character, Tom. Are there any Toms in the room? Tommy? All right, I need another name. Let's go with uh, Brad. We got any Brads? Okay, Brad. All right, we're going with Brad. You can play along with whatever name you want. Here's how this works out in, in the church world too often. All right, let's say Brad starts attending our church. Okay, Brad shows up. Brad's excited. Okay, the first week went well. He's like, you know what? I'm going to come back the second week. Comes back, starts attending with some regularity. All right, the music is pretty good. Preacher is tolerable. I'm in. Okay? But, but Brad never actually engages or participates in the life of the church. Like, he just kind of keeps himself on the fringes. He's like, eh, I'll just kind of watch from a distance. Okay, and then what happens is over time, all of a sudden you look out and you realize, oh, Brad's not here anymore. Where did Brad go? And so you reach out to Brad and you say, Brad, wh where you been, man? We've missed you. And then Brad says something along the lines of, you know, I, like I'm just searching for some community. I just want to find a place where I belong. Right? I just want to, I just, I'm just trying to find a community. Okay, and what, what happens 
right, is that Brad is no longer attending and he's no longer like, participating because he never got engaged in church life. Like, listen, here's what I want to say. Let me get straight to the point. Community is not something that you find. Like that's, that's passive. If you show up to a church just expecting like community to fall into your lap, like it's just there. Like to exist in community with other people means you've got to do some work in cultivating relationships with people. Right? Now listen, as a church family, it's our job to engage with people that are new. Okay, that's on us. Okay, but for, for all of us, if we want to experience that type of community, like, like it requires some, some effort. Right? It requires us to, uh, th- there's a reason that the Bible says things like uh, you have to endure and persevere with one another. Right? Because you're going to get in close relationship with people and then you're, some of those people are going to drive you crazy and you're just going to be like, I'm going to put up with you in Jesus' name. Right? But you've got to do some work to grow in community and to grow in relationship. Because what happens too often in the church world is you show up somewhere, you expect community to just happen without putting forth any sort of effort. And then when it doesn't happen over the course of six to eight weeks, and you're like, well, I guess I'll go look at the next church for it. And we treat churches like some sort of uh, buffet, right? We're like, nah, I didn't like that one. I'm going to go try this next one. Right? Community takes work. Cultivating relationships takes work. It's not passive. Okay? Listen. We could go on and on and on for a while, right? But you get the point. Right? In all these things, whether we're, you know, whether we're talking about church growth or we're talking about uh, community or we're talking about putting sin to death or we're talking about finding God's will for our lives and all these things and so many more, the Christian life is not passive, Right? The Christian life is not where we just kind of sit on the sidelines and kind of wait for everything to fall in place. Like it requires us to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and trust that, that as we pray and as we get to work, that the Lord's going to meet us in that space. Like that's where he meets us. Now listen, I, I want to be really clear. When I talk about working and uh, being active, I am not talking about earning or working for uh, God's love or approval or acceptance. I'm not talking about working or earning salvation. Okay? That, you, you can't. You could, you could spend the rest of your day working. rest of your day. You can take a lot more than that. Right? You could spend the rest of your life working your tail off trying to impress God. And, and the book of Isaiah says your best efforts would still be like filthy rags. So I'm not talking about working to earn anything from God. It's not what I'm saying. Right, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus achieved your acceptance and approval before God through his death, burial, and resurrection. Right, you, you believe on the name of Jesus. I mean, you're, you're brought in. You're accepted. You're loved. You're approved of. You don't have to earn that from God. Okay, but like we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But listen. We're not saved by faith that is alone. That's what James would say. You go look at the book of James, half-brother of Jesus. He's like, hey, let me show you my faith by my works. In other words, like, because I believe this is real, I know it requires certain things of me. The Christian life is not a passive life. Right? We're, we're called to get busy and to work 
and to strive and to give effort and to contribute. Right? If you look at Hebrews 11. Again, I'm not going to read it. You can go read it in your own time. It's called the Hall of Faith. It's all these people that, that the author of Hebrews would say like, hey, these people were killing it, had amazing faith. Here's what you won't find. People that just like sat on their hands and did nothing. Right? One of my Bibles at home, uh, the one that I've kind of marked up and written all over, like you read through Hebrews 11, it's got all these names of the Bible that you're familiar with. And each one of them it says, by faith they did X, Y, Z, and there's an action. Faith, right? Faith acts. It moves. It doesn't sit passive on the sidelines or sit idly and just wait for things to fall in place. Right? And so as we close this morning, here's, here's my question to you. Where is the Lord calling you to reject passivity in your life? Right? That's my question to you. And that's broad and general, and it's that way on purpose because we're all in different spaces in here, right? We've all got, got different areas where we need to grow and, and, and move out of sort of a passive existence and into the work that the Lord has called us to. So my question to you is, where is the Lord calling you out of passivity and into action? If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian and you're not a believer, your, your first step in rejecting passivity is to surrender your life to Jesus. If that's you this morning, if you're like, I, I don't think I'm a Christian, I don't, I'm not really sure. Maybe you're baptized at the age of five, but you're just like, I don't know, if I got some questions. Right, we can have a conversation about that. We'd be honored to talk to you about that. Either down front here in just a minute when the band sings, or you can pull me aside after service. That's your first step in rejecting passivity is, is like, not just kind of staying back here and be like, mm, I don't know, I guess it'll all work out in the end. It's to take a step forward and surrender and submit your life to Jesus today. Okay, but for the, those of you in the room that are Christians, which I assume is a, a pretty good number of us in here, like, like in this moment, what is the Spirit of God bringing to mind? Places and spaces and areas of your life where you're like, man, I need to, I need to get up off my tail. I need to do some work. I need to get in the game. All right, maybe it's one of the areas we mentioned earlier, one of the examples I gave. Maybe it's something different entirely. My educated guess is that we all have some of these places where we know the Lord is saying like, hey, you're, you're, you're on the sideline. I need you to get in the game. Right? We all have these places where we know the Lord is calling us to reject passivity. The question is, will you be obedient enough to not only acknowledge it and admit it and say, okay, yeah, there's an area, but to actually step into the hard but good work that he's called you to? Right, that's the question today. Where is the Lord calling you out of passivity and are you willing to step into it? All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. Um, Lord, just believe that, that all of us here have places where you want to do a work in us and through us. And um, So Father, I pray that in this moment that you would just begin to reveal those things. You begin to show us these 
places where we, where we know that we've been too passive or too idle, where we have not, um, where we have not given ourselves to, to planning and preparing and actually like rolling up our sleeves and getting dirty in, in the work, the good work that you've laid before us. And so, Father, as you reveal those things, I pray that we would not only have an awareness to actually see them and notice them and admit them and acknowledge them, but that we would like, actually move into obedience. Lord, where we've been too passive, would we step into the place you're calling us to step into? Maybe it's we need to step up and, and find a place to serve. Maybe it's uh, we need to step into what you've called us to be as witnesses in the, the places we live and work and, and play. Lord, maybe we need to step uh, into, um, Lord, Lord, investing in our homes and our marriages. Maybe we need to, um, Lord, invest in relationships here in this body of believers that we might grow in community with one another. I mean, we, the list could go on. But Lord, whatever you're bringing to mind, I pray that we would step forward into what you have laid before us, that we would reject, reject passivity, Lord, that we would follow uh, your word, follow your call on our lives to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.